Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you and glorify you. Lord, we have hope in Jesus. Lord, I can't help but think, Lord, of the reality of the mercy seat of Jesus. Where, Lord, we have forgiveness, redemption, reconciliation, and eternal life. And, Lord, it all seems so odd, I'm certain, to some people to to think that way. But, Lord, we know that our life, our love, our hope rests firmly and completely in the person of Jesus Christ. Our faith and our confidence isn't in rules and rituals. It isn't even in religious institutions. Lord, our hope is in nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. So, Lord, again, I pray that this evening, Lord, as we go over this particular passage of Scripture, that you would remind us that if for whatever reason this is the last time in a very long time that we get to gather together, Lord, I pray that you would speak to hearts. Lord, I pray that we could worship you and that we could learn from you as if the clock is ticking and time is running out. In Jesus' name, amen. First Samuel chapter 6. Now the ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months. And the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners saying, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us, how should we send it to its place? So they said, if you send away the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it empty. But by all means, return it to him with a trespass offering. Then you will be healed and it will be known to you why his hand is not removed from you. Then they said, what is the trespass offering which we shall return to him? They answered, Five golden tumors and five golden rats. Who wouldn't want that? According to the number of the lords of the Philistines, for the same plague was on all of you and on all your lords. Therefore, you shall make images of your tumors and images of your rats that ravage the land. And you shall give the glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will lighten his hand from you, from your gods and from your land. Why then do you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts when he did mighty things among them? Did they not let the people go that they might depart? Now, therefore, make it a new cart. Take two milk cows, which have never been yoked, and hitch the cows to the cart and take their calves home away from them. Then take the ark of the Lord and set it on the cart and put the articles of gold which you are returning to him as a trespass offering and a chest by its side. Then send it away and let it go and watch. If it goes up the road to its own territory, to Beth Shemesh, then he has done us this great evil. But if not, then we shall know that it is not his hand that struck us. It just happened by coinkydink. In verse 10, then the men did so. They took two milk cows and hitched them to the cart and shut up their calves at home. 
And they set the ark of the Lord on the cart and the chest with the gold rats and the images of their tumors. Then the cows headed straight for the road to Beth Shemesh and went along the highway, mooing, lowing as they went and did not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. And the lords of the Philistines went after them to the border of Beth Shemesh. Now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley, and they lifted their eyes and saw the ark and rejoiced to see it. Then the cart came into the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh and stood there. A large stone was there. So they split the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. The Levites took the ark of the Lord and the chest that was with it, in which were the articles of gold, and put them on the large stone. Then the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and made sacrifices the same day to the Lord. So when the five lords of the Philistines had seen it, they returned to Ekron the same day. These are the golden tumors which the Philistines returned as a trespass offering to the Lord. One for Ashdod, one for Gaza, one for Ashkelon, one for Gath, and one for Ekron. And the golden rats, according to the number of all the cities of the Philistines belonging to the five lords, both fortified cities and country villages, even as far as the large stone of Abel on which they set the ark of the Lord, which stone remains to this day in the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh. Then he struck the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked into the ark of the Lord. He struck 50,070 men of the people and the people lamented because the Lord had struck the people with a great slaughter. And the men of Beth Shemesh said, who is able to stand before the holy Lord God and to whom shall it go up from us? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriat Jerim, saying the Philistines have brought back the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it with you. Wow. Someone has said, man purposes, but God disposes. We make plans. We start a business. We build a house. We start a family. We determine in our hearts and in our minds and in our circumstances that we're going to do what we want to do. But the reality is that there is a God, a sovereign God, who leads and guides all of the happenings of human beings. You've got to understand something. The wise men of the Philistines had come up with a plan to get rid of the ark of God that would somehow absolve them of the responsibility and blame. Now, you'll remember that they fought this mighty battle. They captured the ark of the covenant. The one little box that was covered with gold and they took it to the temple of Dagon. You'll remember they placed it opposite Dagon. You'll remember that when they put the Ark of the Covenant in the temple of Dagon, the next day they found Dagon bowing to the Ark of the Covenant. And then they propped their little God back up on his pedestal. And the next day his head was cut off and his, his arms, were, his hands were cut off and his feet were cut off so that only the torso remained. And then they realized, hey, something's up here. This is not normal. And then there was a plague that ravaged the city and men began to grow tumors inside of their secret parts. 
If you are unfamiliar with biblical terminology, those of you who have ever heard the expression, stick it where the sun don't shine, you get an understanding of the biblical meaning of the secret parts. When they thought that it might be a coincidence, they sent it to another city and tumors and rats began to eat their grain supplies and they finally thought, you know what? Something's really wrong here. And in chapter 6, verse 1, it says, Now the ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines. How long? Seven months. Seven months is a long time to have tumors and rats eating you high and dry. We get nervous and upset if we don't get to go to work for a week. Or if the cable box is unplugged from the TV. Can you imagine if you went to Costco tomorrow and all of the aisles that are normally filled with those huge pallets of water and supplies are completely gone? People might be tempted to panic. But for seven months, they suffered. But it reminded me of something. How many people do you know in rebellion and disobedience to the Lord try to figure out a way to continue in their rebellion and disobedience? One month, two months, three months, one year, two years, three years. Because they're running from God. They're running from the plan of God and the purpose of God for their life. It reminded me of a story that I heard several years ago. There was a young man named Robert Garth. And Robert Garth was 15 years old, and he was one of the outstanding sprinters in the United States of America. The Junior Olympics were going to be held in Detroit, but all he had was a ratty shirt and a ratty pair of shorts. And he wondered if he would be able to compete if he had a nice suit, if he had a nice pair of running shoes, if he had a way to compete at a level that was consistent with the rest of the people who were going. And he remembered that there was this man named Mr. Mosseri. And Mr. Mosseri always seemed to have money on him. As a matter of fact, Mr. Mosseri is one of those guys who would reach into his pocket and he would have a wad of $100 bills. And so Robert Garth decided that he was going to rob Mr. Mosseri. He was going to sneak up on him and he was going to hit him hard enough to knock him out, but gently enough to kill him, not to kill him, but just so he could take some money so he could buy this, the gear that he needed to participate in the race. And sure enough, he showed up, and there was Mr. Mosseri, but he never counted on Mr. Mosseri to turn around and look him straight in the eye. It was one thing to whack a person on the head when they're not looking, and it's another thing when they're looking you straight in the eye. And Mr. Mosseri said, take whatever you want. And Robert Garth panicked and hit him on the head and continued to hit him and bludgeoned him to death, and he didn't even know it. He took the money, he ran off, and while... Robert Garth was running away. They took Mr. Mosseri to the hospital, and by the time he got there, he was already dead. Robert Garth took the money, 
He bought the suit. He competed in the Junior Olympics in the 200 meter, my race, and he got fourth place. And then this person, who used to be an excellent student, his grades began to slip. His circumstances began to change. He became morose and sullen. And even though he had never drank up until that point, he continued to drink and drink and drink. And somehow he managed to make it out of high school. And somehow he managed to marry his high school sweetheart. And somehow they managed to have a baby. But three years into the relationship, she decided that she was going to divorce him and leave him. And he went from one failed circumstance to another failed circumstance to another failed circumstance. And at the age of 30, he thought, you know what? I'm tired of running. I'm tired of running. I'm tired of holding this secret. And he decided to kill himself. And then a voice whispered in his ear, you don't have to kill yourself. You can turn yourself in. Tell someone what you've done. And he decided not only to tell someone, but he told everyone what he had done. And he went into the police department and he said, I killed a person 15 years ago. People are running from their guilt and their circumstances. And that's exactly part of the point that is taking place in this particular passage of Scripture because people want to be relieved of the guilt and the stress and the pain and the sin. And clearly the Bible has always taught that there's two ways to come to God. You either come to God on God's terms or you come, come on your own terms. And that's the reoccurring theme in the message of the Bible. From the very beginning, when... God showed up in the garden and Adam and Eve disobeyed and Cain and Abel brought a sacrifice to God. You'll remember that Cain's offering was rejected and Abel's was accepted. The reason? Because Abel came with a substitutionary atonement, with a sacrifice, with shed blood. But Cain came on his own terms. And the Philistines... The Philistines had captured the ark, but the ark didn't seem to offer them what they really wanted. Subjugation over their enemies. As a matter of fact, when they captured the ark, all it did was make them sick. And so look at verse 2. And the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners saying, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us how we should send it to its place. Isn't that interesting? How do we get rid of it? We know it doesn't belong here with us. You know, that's the way cultural Christianity works. Have you ever met someone who wanted just enough religion to make them dangerous? But they never realized that God had a different plan and a different purpose. Now, remember... As the Philistines call for the priests and the diviners, they're going to exercise a form of divination. They don't know exactly what to do. Now, by the way, how good of an idea is it to go back to the Israelites and say, look, we've captured this golden magic box of yours and it's killing us. What should we do with it? Well, they knew that they couldn't keep it. 
They knew that they couldn't ask the Israelites. They didn't know exactly how to give it back. And so in verse 3 it says, So they said, If you send away the ark of God of Israel, do not send it empty, but by all means return it to him, the him there speaking to the Lord with a trespass offering. Then you will be healed and it will be known to you why his hands are not removed from you. In the ancient world, it was not unusual for them to practice what was called divination. And the idea is that you discern the future by looking at the entrails of an animal or you make a particular sacrifice and you try to, to, to get some sort of understanding of what's going on. In the Philistine way of thinking, they thought that God wanted a trespass offering or what you and I might call a guilt offering. They knew that they had offended this deity. They knew that they were guilty. But they didn't know how to make the guilt go away. Does that sound familiar to you at all? Have you ever done something that you knew was wrong? It was stupid. It was wrong. It was stupid. But no matter where you went, no matter how far you ran, no matter how secret you kept it, the guilt wouldn't go away. And so the Philistines made the mistake that so many people make today. They want the guilt to go away, but they're not willing to come to God on God's terms to make the guilt go away. They want sin forgiven. They want the guilt to go away, but they're not willing to come to God on God's terms. And God's terms to make the guilt go away is to come to Christ. And the reason Because over and over and over again, we've learned in the Bible that God is holy. And by holy, we mean God is absolutely perfect and God is absolutely just and God hates wickedness and he shuns evil. He is pure and holy and righteous. As a matter of fact, over and over again, the children of Israel were told, be ye holy as God is holy. In the New Testament, it's reiterated, be perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. And then someone cries out, but wait a minute, nobody's perfect. I know. It's true. What human being is holy and what human being is perfect? There are no holy people and there are no perfect people. So how can you come to a holy, righteous and pure God with just even the taint of sin or wickedness? That's the gospel. Jesus Christ comes and he dies on the cross for our sin. And not only does God take away the guilt and take away the sin and offers to us forgiveness, but there's something else that happens. If if, if that were the only thing that happened, that would be amazing in and of itself. But God goes one step further and he imputes the righteousness of Jesus Christ to our account. Imagine you're really poor and 
Someone who's wealthy says, oh, you're a million dollars in debt. I'll pay your debt. Woohoo! That would be great. But imagine this person not only pays your debt, but puts an additional million dollars in your account after he's paid the debt. You would just go crazy with joy. Hey, guess what? In a very real sense, that's exactly what God has done. He has not only forgiven your sin, but he's imparted to you the righteousness which is in Jesus Christ. The Philistines want to make the guilt go away, but they're unwilling to come to God on God's terms. And you've got to understand something. When God is treated like a hobby or a curiosity or a field of study, when the Lord isn't treated as the master of your life, there are people who just want to send him away. I want religion if it's convenient. Sure, if something bad happens, I want religion. Hey, but let's leave God to the professional clergy. Well, that's not the kind of relationship that God wants to have with you. You see, the truth is, the Lord wants you to have friendship and relationship not based through the teacher in the pulpit or even through the church. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm so glad you're here and I'm so glad you're coming to the Bible study. I want you here and I want you at the Bible study. But I don't want to leave you with the impression that somehow you can vicariously have a relationship with Christ through me because you can't. As a matter of fact, in first Samuel, chapter six, verse four, it says, then they said, what is the trespass offering which we will return to him? They answered five golden tumors, five golden rats, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines, for the same plague was on all of you and on all of your lords. There's ten rulers, so there's ten images. Now, I, I need to help you understand something. Remember who Dagon is. He's the god of the harvest. As a matter of fact, that's what his name means. It was a word that was used in the ancient Philistine language to describe grain or to describe the harvest. So the presence of the rats seems to indicate that the rats had infested the grain supply. In other words, here was both a epidemic of tumors growing inside of these people, but also rats had raided the grain supplies, and so there was also a famine. So the ancient Philistines believed in what you and I might call sympathetic magic. When I use that term, do you understand what I mean? Here is the idea. In the ancient world, priests and diviners would mold images because they hoped and believed that by fabricating these objects and, the, and what they represented, that they could remove things. Those of you who are even a little bit familiar with voodoo dolls, maybe you've, you've heard of the expression where you make a doll of someone and then you attach um, something of their personal possession and then you stick the voodoo doll. This is the idea of sympathetic magic and this is actually what they believed and hoped. They believed and hoped that by making these golden objects, 
that they would take their wickedness and their sin and their guilt and the pestilence and that they would take all of the wickedness and evil and that they would somehow put them in these objects. And when the objects left the Philistine territory, their problems would leave with them. Here's the problem with that kind of thinking. It's not true. Sympathetic magic is not true. Can you touch an object and make all of your problems go away? Is there something that you can do to make the guilt go away or to make the sin go away? And so it's interesting to me. That it's their sincere belief, it is their deep conviction that when the golden objects leave their territory, the plague will leave with them. Now, and here's the rub. When the old golden objects leave their territory, does the plague leave with them? The answer is yes. And let me tell you what's interesting about this. The plague leaves not because they made the golden objects and because sympathetic magic is true. The plague leaves because God is a merciful God and a gracious God and a loving God and a generous God. And so that even in their wicked and incomplete manner, the moment that they turn from their wickedness and the moment that they turn from from dishonoring God and and um, aggravating God and dismissing God and being disrespectful to God, there's 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 a lull in the judgment. By the way, will the unbelievers and the idolaters experience a full and a final judgment later on? The answer is yes. Is it possible that we can postpone judgment for a little while? Sometimes. Sometimes God in His grace and His mercy postpones judgment even to a nation that's lost its way that's dishonored God that's done wicked, perverse stupid things this gives me hope for our country this is the point that I'm trying to make with you in our government's misguided way have they embarked on a course of dishonoring and displeasing God I think so in a number of different ways Does that mean that there's no hope? I don't think so. Because I think that the moment that we as a people are willing to turn from our sin and turn to the Lord, it generates a mechanism of hope. You know, there's a day of prayer, a national day of prayer that's fast approaching. And I'm hoping and praying for our country. I'm hoping that Christians all across America, from California to Maine, from Minnesota to New Orleans, all across this great country, I'm hoping that men and women will get on their knees and they will cry out to God so that sympathetically, magically, all of our problems will disappear. So that we can turn from our sin and turn to the Savior. You know what's interesting to me is the biblical writer doesn't mock their misplaced faith. Even though it's wrong-headed. 
You know, it reminds me of what Paul wrote in Romans chapter 10, verse 4, where he said, How are they to hear without a preacher? The great need of people who are lost in sins is for someone to tell them the truth about the Savior. And believe it or not, the Jewish people had a responsibility not just to represent God to the surrounding nations, but to represent them in such a way that there would be something glorious about knowing and loving and serving this God. And I get frustrated. I get so frustrated when I see this caricature of Christianity over and over again written about in the newspapers and and misrepresented on TV and demonized in so many different ways as they misrepresent the whole point of what it means to have a right relationship with God in Christ. And so in verse 5, it says, Therefore you shall make images of your tumors and images of your rats that ravage the land, and you shall give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps, perhaps, perhaps he will lighten his hand from you, from your gods and from your land. Remember, here, here is the idea. Hey, look, it couldn't hurt, <laughs> is what they're saying. And in verse 6 it says, Why then do you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts when he did mighty things among them? Did they not let the people go that they might depart? Now remember, hundreds and hundreds of years earlier, even the Philistines had heard the story about the children of Israel and about how Moses left Egypt and how Moses came to the Pharaoh and over and over again said, Thus saith the Lord, let my people go. And over and over and over again, the Pharaoh said, no, nine, nix, never, not going to happen. And plague after plague and judgment after judgment and horror after horror fell upon the people. And they go, well, look, we remember this. Why then do you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? Here's the idea. Clearly, God's judging us. Why don't we just call it a day? Why don't we just go, God's judging us, time out. Hey, what we're doing is wicked and wrong. Let's stop. And the guys go, okay. When he did mighty things among them, they did not let the people go that they might depart. The memories are there. It filled their hearts. And again, for some of you, the memories are there. You remember what the Bible said. You remember the stories that your mother and father used to say. You remember those short journeys to Bible study or to Sunday school. You remember those stories about David and Goliath. You remember those stories about Moses. And even if you don't remember the stories, you saw the Disney version. You're remembering there's something in your collective consciousness. God judged the Egyptians with ever-increasing hardship when they refused to obey God. And so, guess what this memory did? It made the lords, the priests, and the diviners of the Philistines more determined than ever to get rid of the ark. When I was driving over here from the radio studio, I had to do my show from the other studio. Um, I'm driving along and I'm hearing a news broadcast that said, 
Egyptians, the people in Egypt, have slaughtered vast herds of swine in anticipation of the swine flu. Now, question. Is the swine flu transmitted by pigs? No. Have they killed massive amounts of bacon for no good reason? Yeah, I mean, you know, they're Muslims. They have no business eating pork anyway. Now, is this going to help them, though? Is this going to make the swine flu go away? It's not, because that's magical thinking. You see, when you create a fiction in your mind, and then you apply that fiction to your circumstances, that's magical thinking. If you think to yourself, you know, God doesn't really care about my sin. God knows that I'm human. God understands that I'm not perfect. But God also understands that I'm not Jeffrey Dahmer. It's not like I'm going out killing my neighbors and sticking their head in the refrigerator and leaching the skin from acids off of the surfaces of their skull. I mean, I'm bad, but I'm not that bad. Somewhere between Jeffrey Dahmer and Mother Teresa is me. But what's God's criteria? Holiness. Perfection. Look at verse 7. They're going to test God. Now, therefore, make a new card, it says. Take two milk cows, which have never been yoked. And hitch the cows to the cart and take their calves home away from them. In verse 8, then take the ark of the Lord and set it on the cart and put the articles of gold, which you're returning to him as a trespass offering in a chest by its size, then send it away and let it go. Hey, look, there's no driver. There's no GPS. There's no mechanical thing happening. Verse 9, and watch, if it goes up the road to its own territory, to Beth Shemesh, then He, that is the Lord God, has done us this great evil. But if not, then we shall know that it is not his hand that struck us. In other words, they're still holding on to the idea that the series of circumstances and judgments may not be God after all, just like you. Maybe it's just, you know, this is a downturned economy. I mean, a lot of people have lost their job. A lot of marriages break up. A lot of people are suffering. A lot of people have deep problems and insecurities. And over and over again, the Bible warns us. And the Lord Jesus keeps telling us, turn from your sin. Turn from your sin. Walk away. Turn from your sin. Turn to the Lord. Embrace the grace and the mercy that's available. It says in verse 9 and watch, if it goes up to the road, then he's done this great evil. But if not, then we shall know that it is not his hand that struck us. It was all a gigantic coinky dink. It just happened by chance. Bad things happen to good people. It's just one of those things. It says in verse 10, then the men did so. They took two milk cows and hitched them to the cart and shut up their calves at home. Now, again, mothers, whether a dog, a cat or a cow, when a cow gives birth to the little cowlet, what are they called, calves? Yeah. When the cow gives birth to the little tiny cows, 
What is the mother's cow's inclination? It's to, it's a, yeah, their little udder, I guess they're fairly large udders, are filled with milk. They want their calf. They want to be with their calf. They are cows and they want to go with the calf. And so, again, if the milk cows are hit, hitched to the, the cart, what are the milk cows inclined to do? They're inclined to go and find the calves. They're going to go in the direction where their calves are. It says, then the men did so. They took the milk cows. They hitched them to the cart. They shut up the calves at home. In verse 11, and they set the ark of the Lord on the cart and the chest with the gold rats and the images of their tumors. In verse 12, then the cows headed straight for the road to Beth Shemesh. Is that normal? That is not normal. It's as if an unseen force. It's as if an invisible hand. It seems that supernatural powers are directing these cows against all logic and nature to go in a direction that they shouldn't be going. Something is happening to these cows against all natural instincts. You know, when you're in a situation where defying all natural instincts, you go against the natural instincts in a direction that's completely inconsistent with everything that you've learned, then I think it is time to ask and answer the question, maybe there's something here that's happening that's supernatural. In verse 12, it says, Then the cows headed straight for the road to Beth Shemesh and went along the highway, lowing as they went. Why are they mooing? Moo. Moo. Here's the deal. The cows are calling out for their children. Even though their children is in the opposite direction. Look what it says. And they didn't turn aside to the right hand or to the left. Talk about supernatural cow GPS. This is the direction that the cows are going. And the lords of the Philistines went after them to the border of Beth Shemesh. Something larger, something greater than these cows are pushing them in that direction. And every once in a while, something larger something greater will push the nation in a particular direction will push your family in a particular direction or push you in a direction that you wouldn't normally go wow I wouldn't normally go in that direction I wouldn't normally go to this church. I wouldn't normally open up my Bible. I wouldn't even normally listen to a Bible study. But something, something more powerful than a mother's instinct to stay with her children is directing them. And even then, the mother continues to call out. I find that really interesting. And when the Philistines saw this, they interpreted this as God accepting their guilt offering and their trespass offering. And the Philistine leaders wanted to be able to report back to the people that the plague is passed and we don't need to panic and we don't need to close the borders because phew, we dodged a bullet. 
And I know what some of you are thinking. Columbine. Ground Zero. Hurricane Katrina. Tsunami kills 150,000 people. Is it possible that a pandemic could literally kill tens of thousands of people? It is possible. Will it happen? We don't know. We really don't know, do we? But at what point? What will it take? What kind of a wake-up call do you need before you say, Wow, I am now going to fully, wholeheartedly, with all of my love and with all of my emotion and with all of my resources, serve the Lord. <laughs> in verse 13, it says, Now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley, and they lifted up their eyes. They saw the ark, and they go, It's back! Remember, when the ark left, it was their way of thinking, well, God's presence is gone. God's glory is gone. God's favor is gone. And now God's presence is back, and God's glory is back, and God's favor is back. The ark is back, and there's going to be trouble. Woohoo! We're, we're, we're good to go. By the way, I need, I need to ask you something. What did the people of Israel do to retrieve the ark of the Lord? What's the right answer? Nothing. They did nothing. Did they pray their guts out and the ark came back? No. Did they even repent of their sin and turn to the true and the living God? The ark just shows up. Is there a... Is there a lesson there for you? I want God's favor. I want God's presence. I want God's glory. And so you try to do things, say things, manipulate things, make deals with God. I'm here to tell you, you don't have to make a deal with God. He loves you. He's not looking to make a deal with you. You know what God is doing? He's looking to show up in your life. But you need to honor him and you need to come to him on God's terms. Look at verse 14. Then the cart came into the field of Joshua, Beth Shemesh, and stood there. A large stone was there. We know that this is the stone of Abel. So they split the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. Verse 15. The Levites took down the ark of the Lord. Good. That's a good thing. And the chest that was with it, in which were the articles of gold, and put them in a large stone. Then the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and made sacrifices the same day to the Lord. And that's a bad thing. You want to know why it's a bad thing? Because there was a certain way that you would offer a sacrifice. There was a certain offering that was acceptable to God and there was a certain offering that was unacceptable to God. The Levites rightly took down the ark of the Lord. They placed it with the chest of, of, of the gifts of the of the of the, what the Philistines did, the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and made sacrifices. Were the men of Beth Shemesh allowed to offer offerings and burnt sacrifices? What did you have to be in order to offer the sacrifice? You had to be a priest. You know what? 
they offered the cows as a burnt offering. Good thing or a bad thing? It's a bad thing. Because heifers were accepted, but cows that had just given birth were forbidden. This was in direct disobedience to the Lord. And the law that God had revealed governing sacrifices, again, in Leviticus chapter 1, verse 3, it says, If his offering is a burnt sacrifice of the herd, let him offer a male without blemish. He shall offer it of his own free will at the door of the tabernacle of the meeting before the Lord. There is, a, there is a, an offering that is acceptable to God and there is an offering that is unacceptable to God. And imagine the person saying, a cow is a cow is a cow. What does it matter? I'll tell you why it matters. Because that burnt offering and that sacrifice is supposed to typify the perfect offering and the perfect sacrifice. You see, the sacrifice isn't going to be a female, it's going to be a male. It's going to be Jesus. And it has to be not just any old cow, but it has to be a cow. It has to be a heifer, a male, spotless, without blemish. No inconsistencies, no diseases, no problems. And he shall offer it of his own free will at the door of the tabernacle. Why can't I just come to God on my own? Why can't I just say, look, you know that I'm basically a good person and I, and I basically try to do the best that I can. Why can't, why can't I come on my own? And clearly, the reason why you can't come on your own is because the only appropriate sacrifice has to come from the appropriate source. God is holy. A.W. Tozer said, we've learned to live with unholiness. And have come to look upon it as natural and the expected thing. We live in a culture and we live in a society that is so committed to the individual's right to do whatever he or she wants to do, to believe whatever he or she wants to believe, that we've come to that, to that place where we say, look, you know, whatever you want to believe, hey, that's your business. You have your belief, I have my belief. Okay, sarah, sarah. But the Bible makes it abundantly clear there's only one way to approach God that's on his terms. In verse 16, so when the five lords of the Philistines had seen it, they returned to Ekron the same day. They believed that they judged a bullet. But remember, grace and mercy was extended to them just for a little while. But make no mistake, the Lord will judge his own people when they fail to approach him on his terms and in verse 17, look what it says. These are the golden tumors which the Philistines returned as a trespass offering to the Lord. One for Ashdod, one for Gaza, one for Ashkelon, one for Goth, one for the Ekron. These are the five major city-states that constituted the Philistine Empire. In verse 18, it says, And the golden rats, according to the number of the cities of the Philistines belonging to the five lords, both fortified cities and country villages, even as far as the large stone of Abel, where they set the Ark of the Lord, that's the Ark of the Covenant, which stone remains to this day in the field of Joshua Beth Shemesh. Why is that there? Have you ever been driving on a cross-country trip with your family and you see a sign that says historical marker up ahead? My wife hates those signs. 
Because she knows I want to stop at them. And I want to read them. I want to know every significant historical thing that has happened between here and Albuquerque. I want to pull over and I want to read the historical marker. So why is there a historical marker there? Because the return of the Ark of the Lord was very significant in the history of of the Jewish people. So that's why that verse is there. It's the stone remains to this day. When 1 Samuel was written, you could go to that place where all of these events had taken place. And in verse 19, it says, Then he struck the men of Beth Shemesh, because they looked into the ark of the Lord. He struck 50,070 men of the people. Now, scholars are divided. Some say it's 50,000. Some say 70. We're not sure. We, some have suggested this might be a scribal error. For 50,000 people to die, that seems a little over the top. Whether this was a preservation of a numerical accuracy, it's, it's, it's hard for us to know. I can't say dogmatically that 50,000 plus 70 people died. Was it 50,000? Was it 70? I don't know. But guess what? The Lord struck the people. Look what it says. The Lord struck the people with a great slaughter. And he gives the reason. Because they had looked inside the Ark of the Covenant. So why did God kill them? Because the men violated the holiness of God. This might sound over the top to you, but I need you to understand. They did the most shocking, the most wicked, the most irreverent thing imaginable. They peeped into the box. And you might think, that doesn't sound so wicked. That doesn't sound so dramatic. That doesn't sound irreverent and shocking. I mean, all these people were, were curious. I mean, being curious, is that such a big deal? But remember, when you approach God, you have to approach God on God's terms. God is holy. In Numbers chapter 4, verse 5, it says, When the camp prepares to journey, Aaron and his sons shall come, and they shall take down the covering and veil. They will cover the ark of the testimony with it. Who is allowed to look into the ark? No one. Who is allowed to place blood on the top of the mercy seat of the ark? Only the high priest, and then only once a year. In Numbers 4, 6, it says, Then they shall put put on it a covering of badger skins, and spread over that a cloth entirely of blue, and they shall insert poles. And in Numbers chapter 4, if you go all the way to verses 15 through 20, I want to read it all so that you'll understand. It says, And when Aaron and his sons have finished covering the sanctuary and the furnishings of the sanctuary, when the camp is set to go, then the sons of Kohath, shall come to carry them. These are the sons of Aaron. But they shall not touch any holy thing lest they die. These are the things in the tabernacle of meeting which the sons of Kohath are to carry. The duly appointed duty of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, is the oil for the light. The sweet incense, the daily grain offering, the anointing oil, the oversight of the tabernacle, all of that is in it with the sanctuary and the furnishings. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, do not cut off the tribe of the families of the Kohathites from among the Levites, but 
do this in regard to them that they may live and not die when they approach the most holy things. Aaron and his sons shall go in and, anoint, and appoint each of them to the service and the task, but they shall not go in to watch while the holy things are being covered, lest they die. It was written hundreds of years ago. And you know, that was then and this is now. And sure, God was holy back then, but things have changed and these are hard times. And the Philistines and, and here we are at Beth Shemesh and, and what are we going to do? What are we going to do? The Bible, you know, it, it, it all depends. You, you've got to think about this in its context and how do we apply it today? When the Bible says, if you do this, expect to die. And they did it. And they died. Here's my question to you. Harsh. Over the top. Here's part of the challenge that each and every one of us have. Each and every one of us deserve to die. Our wickedness has brought upon us a death sentence. According to the Old Testament, I deserve to die. The Bible says, you shall not suffer a witch to live. You practice divination. You communicate with ghosts and spirits. That's what I did as a young man. I completely ignored the Bible. I completely did everything exactly the opposite of what the Bible commanded. I deserved to die, and I didn't. God spared my life. And I accepted Jesus Christ as my Savior. And He forgave me. And He washed me. And not only did He forgive me of my sins, but then He imputed upon me the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Because... I'm not holy, and because I'm not perfect, but in order to have a relationship and friendship with God, I must be holy, and I must be perfect, and the only way that I can be holy and perfect is if God sees me through the lens of Jesus Christ. You know what's interesting to me? In this particular passage... The citizens of Beth Shemesh dishonored the Lord. They violated His holiness. They failed to show respect. They failed to show reverence. They failed to fear the Lord. And they failed to fear His presence. And so you know what? They thought that they had a permission to offend God. And they thought that they had the right and the privilege to dictate to God how they were going to experience that friendship and relationship. They forgot what the Bible said. One of two things happened. They either forgot what the Bible said or they chose to ignore what the Bible says. You know, in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 28, the writer says, So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many to those who eagerly wait for him. He will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. 
In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14, it says, Pursue peace with all people and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. Who will see the Lord? Holy people. How do you get to be holy? You have to have a right relationship with God in Christ. Does God allow the tangible signs of His grace and His presence to somehow supersede what He said? Not necessarily. The ark was back. The ark was back. It says, And the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Holy Lord God? And to whom shall it go up from us? Remember how glad they were to see it? And now how glad they are to see it go? In verse 21 it says, So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath-Jerim, saying, The Philistines have brought back the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up with you! Get rid of it! By the way, the Ark of the Covenant will be in Kiriath-Jerim for the next 20 years. For 20 years, it will be there. And then Samuel's ministry is going to show up. But that's next week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, sometimes we misunderstand and we misinterpret the holiness of God. We somehow think that we have to be better and better and better and better and we realize something. Things aren't getting better. We're getting worse. We're not becoming more holy. We're becoming more sinful. And Heavenly Father, I pray that we would experience what you want us to experience. Peace and joy and assurance because of Jesus. Lord, we pray that we would give up the false notion that somehow we can be good enough or smart enough or holy enough to be acceptable to you when you demand perfection, when you demand righteousness, when you demand holiness. And the only perfect, the only righteous, the only holy, thing that we have to offer is Jesus. And only because you've offered him first. And so, Lord, I pray. I pray for the person who's living under the illusion, who's living under the magical, superstitious thought that God will somehow overlook and pretend that your imperfections don't matter. I pray that you would reveal to them how wrong-headed that is. That only a perfect, only a holy, and only a righteous person will be able to stand before God. And we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you that in Him, in His love, in His grace, in His mercy, in His forgiveness, we can stand before you justified. And Lord, for that person who, who's never experienced that, Lord, I pray that they would cry out to you even now. That they want to be accepted on your terms and not their own.
They want to be forgiven and have hope and joy. Lord, I pray that you would impart that to them. And I pray that they would experience the peace and the joy and the assurance of what it means to have a right relationship with you because of Jesus. In Jesus' name. Amen.